Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Cal Roth, so great to, to finally meet in person. And your book, You Will Own Nothing, great book. I want to find out all about it. There's a, a very controversial views in it that are very interesting, and I'm really looking forward to you answering all my questions. Yes, I'm excited to be here, and I wanted to to say again, we talked a little bit about this before, but we are both part of the big hair club. Uh, everyone knows I'm an advocate for big hair. We call it laissez hair on Twitter, so you are now part of the laissez hair club. Do I do I get a? Uh, membership but can i use it at the airport like an, an id yeah card? so you get to go through tsa pre-check uh they, they oh, put you at the front great. of the line for that excellent <laughs> well now your title you will own nothing it's a very interesting title because at first glance i kind of want to own nothing actually like and from from a point of view of lifestyle like imagine if you don't own a home a car you know maybe you own a couple of t-shirts and a pair of pants and whatever I used to live like this. I, I, for a while, for about a, a couple of years, I just lived from Airbnb to Airbnb. I just had one bag. I threw out all of my 40 years of possessions and lived like this for a while. And it wasn't such a bad lifestyle actually, but I know you're talking about it from a more kind of global financial perspective that this could be a very bad thing. But from a lifestyle point of view, I didn't have responsibility for anything. It was great. That's exactly the buy-in um, that the predictors of you will own nothing want to get from people. If you go back to the World Economic Forum, which is you know littered with the global business and financial elite and political elites, the number one prediction in this video, the, the top eight predictions for 2030, is you'll own nothing and you'll be happy. So they're actually trying to sell this lifestyle, this carefree, wouldn't it be great to not own anything? But you and I both know, James, that when you own things, that's how you create wealth, right? Wealth is derived from ownership. You own assets that have the ability to retain value or appreciate in value. I think this is a very important concept, actually, in personal finance. I don't think you can really generate wealth from just making a salary, or it's very, very difficult. You have to, like you say, own stuff and get chunks of money that are taxed differently than income is. Even if you make, let's say, what, what's a good number that Americans make? Like 200,000 a year. So you make 200,000 a year. 40% goes straight to taxes. You know, 
in some places like New York City, it's over 60% goes to taxes, but let's just say 40%. So now you're left with 120,000. And that's your rent in New York City, right? <laughs> yeah. So like if, if you live in a city that's paying you 200,000, then your rent is going to be like 6,000 maybe. So that's, that's 70,000. So you're left with 4,000 a month in expenses. So you're not going to be eating out dinner or taking any vacations or anything like that. Like it's very hard to save money on an income, even if you make like an enormous salary. No, it's very true. And I think going back to you know your lifestyle piece that you opened it, I think there's also the differentiation between stuff and assets. You know, people think that you go out and you spend on a credit card and you get jeans. Maybe they make you look good, but that's not really an investment. That's not something that's going to have the opportunity to go to work for you to appreciate in price. But this idea of not having property rights to, to not have private property, that has been the great enabler of wealth, not only here in the United States, but certainly around the world uh, for like the past 70 plus years. And so it's a really important thing. And I think it's also a question of if it's voluntary or if it's by somebody else's uh, mandates. And that's the difference. You, you, you have assets and you said, oh, well, on the stuff side, I just want to have something more carefree. But if that was forced upon you, that feels very different. Yeah. So forced upon me, and you and you mentioned the World Economic Forum. What is the World Economic Forum like? And I'll be honest, I don't know much about it other than occasionally you see Larry Page, Sergey, like Mark Zuckerberg, and then Angela Merkel, Bill Clinton shows up there, Bill Gates. What is this like? Is this a real thing? Is this an organization? What is it? Yeah, it's a non-governmental organization that was founded by a gentleman with an engineering background named Klaus Schwab. It used to be the European Management Forum, and this was back in 1971, I believe. And he has had these ideas around the concept that I have a big problem with called stakeholder capitalism, whatever that means. And the idea that businesses have these other stakeholders that are not involved with the business, but somehow should have a say on what goes out with business. And so what happened in kind of the mid to late 70s is there were a lot of geopolitical issues. Um, you know, you had the uh, the war between the Arabs and, and Israel. You had the, the oil embargo and, and all these things that were going on that brought geopolitics to kind of the, the forefront of what was happening around the globe. So they were able to start attracting more political people into this European management forum, and they changed the name to the World Economic Forum. And I think originally it was kind of this, and for some people I think it still is, kind of this snotty boondoggle. They have this event in Davos, Switzerland, where you know very wealthy and, and well-connected people go together and they hobnob. But somewhere along the way, through all the connections, and they're very well connected with a whole group of people um, you know, from the United Nations to sort of individual entities, big financial players like BlackRock and whatnot, that they started putting out all this quote unquote thought leadership. And a lot of it, if you really kind of get down to the core, is really bananas at the best and you know kind of scary at the worst. So my take on it is that you know there are a lot of people involved who probably don't have any idea of you know kind of these other things that are happening because there's so much information that's coming out of this entity. And the, the, I think their budget's something like $300 million a year. So it's a pretty wow. substantial organization. Yes. So if they get the, that from membership fees, 
Um, people like us pay for through it through our tax dollars. Go figure. That's uh, you know both under Presidents Trump and Biden, we've paid you know millions upon millions of dollars to these organizations. But mostly, it's, it comes from their membership. Um, as well as people who are buying tickets on a one-off basis to this Davos event so to supplement their income and be a part of it. And I have to say, I've been a useful idiot for the World Economic Forum in the past, because again, if you don't dig into these things, it just sounds like, oh, it's a bunch of business people and big ideas. I went to one of their events in New York, probably 10 or 13 years ago and blogged about it and said, oh, this is, you know, they're talking about you know, whatever person's book had come out. And it seemed very innocuous, but there are these crazy ideas. And then you get these people who work in businesses who don't really kind of understand that underlying craziness, bring them back and then start shepherding them into sort of the political sphere as well as the business sphere. And they really get entrenched. There's this crazy video from um, Harvard's Kennedy School where Klaus Schwab, the, the head of the World Economic Forum, is talking about how he's looking at something called his Young Global Leaders Program and that he's looking at all of these, these politicians that were part of it. And he literally says, you know, and then we penetrate the cabinets. And it's like, okay, you know, when you start saying things like we penetrate the cabinets, like at least one eyebrow should go up and like, what exactly do you mean by that? But so many leaders, you know, whether it's Justin Trudeau and Christian Freeland up in Canada or former chancellor of Germany, Angela Merkel, you know, all these people have been in and around these programs getting, you know, at a minimum exposure to, if not indoctrinated by these ideas. What are some of like the craziest ideas you've heard spoken about there? I'm, there, there are so many of them. Um, you know, just going through the eight predictions that they had in in twenty forty uh, or for twenty thirty. You know, one of them is that the U.S. is no longer going to be the world's leading superpower, which sounds crazy on the surface, but probably isn't that crazy in reality. Um, we're going to eat less meat, at, not as a staple, but as a treat. People who are vegetarian might go, oh, that's a great thing. But for many of us, it goes, yeah, I don't know that that makes that much sense. Um, but you know, all kinds of things about fleets of autonomous vehicles, faves, trying to get you know, the sharing economy around cars and getting rid of car ownership. But that might occur, right? Because that's like the dream of Tesla, for instance, which is that, uh, and you mentioned in the book, 90% of the time your car is not being used. So once they're autonomous, like Tesla's dream, uh, then you could rent it out to people 100% of the day. Yeah, and it's one of those things that a lot of this stuff sounds really good in theory until you put it in the context of your freedoms and what that means and the level of control. And we've been through a period of time over the past few years, which really changes our perspective on this. You know, if you had asked me or told me some of these things, you know, 10 years ago, I probably would have been like, eh, you know, big deal, who cares? Uh, but I also, in February of 2020, when COVID was just you know starting to go around China and some of Europe, you know, talked to my husband about it and said, "Do you really think they could shut down the United States?" And eh, no, there's no way they could do that. So things have really shifted in terms of what could actually happen versus you know what we might have thought would happen. I think over the past couple of years.
Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I I lived in over a hundred or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period. And I loved it. I love, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and having my own Airbnb or or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still, to this day, get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be... VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. I was terrified when the shutdown, I mean, I was terrified of COVID like many people, but I was terrified of the shutdown of the economy because things always start with good intentions. Like, oh, we'll shut it down for two weeks. Nobody will get sick. COVID's over. Like, cause that's the 
incubation period was two weeks. And so if everybody just stays inside and holds their breath for two weeks, virus will be gone. But the idea that the government can shut down every, almost every business in America, and they did it for, you know, in many places for over a year, maybe longer. I mean, they just ended the quote unquote emergency. That's scary because what, what's the next good intention that's going to shut down every business? I mean, people went broke. Families went broke. Businesses that have been around for generations went broke. You know, not every not everyone who owns a laundromat is a rich gazillionaire. Like these people, their families went, went broke. I'm a huge small business advocate. And one of the interesting things that I studied, actually wrote a, a previous book about this, was that they actually didn't shut down everyone. And that's what allowed this to continue for so long, is they shut down about a third of the economy. And it was not based on data and science. It was basically based on political clout and connections. So you know, you could get your dog's nails done and it's, it's fur groomed at a big box store, but two doors down, you couldn't get your nails done and your hair groomed because it was a smaller footprint. And so they were making these decisions willy-nilly, so many examples of them. And that was really the scary part because the people who were wealthy and well-connected, I believe if they would have shut down Amazon, they would have shut down the grocery stores, they wouldn't have provided you know, Fed support for the market, the big companies would have felt that pain and they would have said, absolutely not, like we're done with this. And this whole thing would have been over within two weeks probably. But the fact that they didn't do that and they let the big companies benefit, they let Wall Street benefit and the wealthy and wealth connected benefit while the average American and Main Street struggled, that allowed this to perpetuate and allowed the government to really pick winners and losers. And that's kind of this common theme here that we're seeing the picking of winners and losers or the using of, you know, kind of this proxy for social credit as a mean to take away your rights and your property rights. In that particular case, you know, we saw with COVID, um, if you didn't get vaccinated, you couldn't go into a restaurant, you were maybe called names on social media. In some cases, they took away your job. And as we talked about, they actually closed down certain businesses. So, so these are you know, your opportunities to create wealth. And in some cases, the actual wealth creating mechanism that they were able to take away. And that sets a really bad precedent for this concept of ownership as well as your personal freedoms. Shutting down people's rights to make a living and, and their property rights, i.e. shutting their, their businesses down, that's clearly against the Constitution. And in places where it was fought, like Minnesota, Wisconsin, I think people on the side of the Constitution won. Like you were allowed to keep your businesses open in those states. And why wasn't it fought more? Like particularly in a lot of places in the country that are considered smart. This is probably the lingering question like that that you know $64,000 or now $64 trillion with the with inflation question is why didn't we get people fighting tooth and nail and more pushback and i think that's the really scary part because if you think about other central planning initiatives including the ones that we talk about in this book the fact that you don't have people marching for this kind of stuff and particularly Main Street America, who's gotten just screwed over, you know, one thing after another, the shutting down of their businesses, you know, the crazy inflation, the you know big transfer of wealth with zero interest rate policy from Main Street to Wall Street. You know, we're not seeing any marches on Washington or the Fed or anybody, anybody calling for anything in any meaningful way. It's just like, oh, boy, this is hard. 
And I think that's why we really do need a movement, sort of this battle plan to fight back, because otherwise the people who are making these decisions and they are the powerful and well-connected, particularly as we're seeing changes in the global landscape, they're just going to do more things to make sure the people who are already wealthy and well-connected come out on top. And that really is what, at the end of the day, leaves you with nothing. But in the one thing that's always been great, let's say, about the U.S. And, and let's say the U.S. version of capitalism is that there's no real caste system. Like maybe it seems like there is like, you know, legacies get accepted to colleges more easily and stuff sure. like that. But in general, anybody can come up with an idea. It's cheaper than ever to start a business. So, and to move up in this kind of quasi financial caste system, like it's, it's not like a real caste system. There is social and financial mobility. And do you think that's going to start to come to an end? Yes, this is, you know, why this is so important and we have to to fight because that is based on the system of property rights. If you go back to, you know, England and even before that, before they kind of instituted the protection of property rights, how did assets pass down, right? They, they came from, you know, somebody who was wealthy and well-connected and passed down to their heirs. And it was this very vertical type of, um, you know, creation of wealth, and then everybody else didn't participate. Once we had property rights and what you were doing was, was protected, as well as with technological innovation, then you had this horizontal transmission of wealth where you and I could trade our services, I could invest in something, and, and we could each benefit from our own investments and really build up that opportunity to create wealth. And it it is probably the part that scares me the most because the US is really the only place in the world that has this you know fantastic american dream and opportunity and promise and it's why people across you know the globe come here to try to to seek out that opportunity when we've had shifts in financial orders before, whether it was the, the Dutch to the British or the British to the U.S. in terms of who was at the pole position in the global financial economy, the, the group that was waiting was a you know sort of a better option or at least a, a place where you could have that opportunity. If you think about it, if we're no longer the center of the global financial universe and we're not standing for that, then who is? You know, the leading contenders are these bastions of tyranny um, and you know, kind of dictatorial rule. And so, I think it's really important that we preserve this concept of the American dream for everyone here in the U.S. and around the globe as well. And so, what's the path? Because I, I think, like you say, the alternatives are not so good. No, <laughs> and I think that's actually at the end of the day going to be the theory that wins out, which is that. We can't switch because, you know, the, we meaning the globe, because the alternative is no good. And at, at the end of the day, everybody realizes that. But, but like, what, what do you think is the path towards problems from here? Yeah. So, I mean, there are the people who are talking about this all the time. There's probably a half a dozen different potential outcomes. And obviously this could all be upset by a major, uh, geopolitical events. You know, one thing I noted in my research um, was that, you know, anytime we've had a switch of the global financial order, it has been preceded by war. Certainly not all war has preceded a, a new global financial order, but that has been sort of the event to, to be that catalyst for change. Um, yeah. So that's something that could upset it. But one of the things that's happening now around the globe is that you're seeing these different blocks form. You know, we have sort of the, the G7 allies, and then there are the BRICS countries countries, the Brazil, Russia, 
India, China, South Africa, and now they're you know trying to bring in other people in there. And they're trying to move away from the dollar because frankly, you know, with our responsibility as the holder of the world reserve currency, the Fed has this dilemma, it's called Triffin's dilemma, I'm sure you're familiar with, where you have to make decisions. Do you do what's right for the domestic economy or do you hold the dollar stable for the global economy? What does it mean to be the global reserve currency? So it means that most of what happens in the world is done in dollars. So if you think about something like oil historically for the past, you know, it's kind of since the 70s, however many years that's been, <laughs> 50 some odd years, uh, basically everybody prices in, in dollars and things like oil, energy and food are all priced in dollars. So when, when countries trade, they don't trade in their own currencies. They actually trade in dollars and, and end up having to, to settle um, from there. And the challenge with that is that if you don't hold the dollar stable and all of a sudden it requires more dollars to buy oil and to buy food, well, that becomes an issue for these other currencies and these other countries. It becomes a national security and, and, and an economic issue for them because now it's you know they're they're basically spending more to be able to get um, you know the, the basic things that they need in terms of commodities. So normally in previous periods, the Fed would do what it had to do, and we saw this with under uh, Fed Chair Volcker back in the eighties where he took the interest rates up really high in order to bring that stability back to the dollar, bring down the price of oil, bring down the price of commodities priced in dollars so that you know from a global standpoint, that dollar was stable. And now our Fed has amazingly done neither. They haven't held it, held it stable here in the US, they haven't done it on an international basis. And these countries are fed up. As I said, it's, it's, an, it's a security issue for them. So you're seeing these other countries, you know, China is trying to get Saudi Arabia to sell them oil and let them buy it in their currency and their yuan. And so you may end up seeing these different alliances across the globe. You might see something like what was originally proposed um, at Bretton Woods uh, before the dollar was named sort of the, the, the global reserve currency, where you have a basket of currencies, or maybe you have some um, commodities and gold and other precious metals that end up backing a, a currency. So there are a number of different scenarios. And it doesn't mean that the dollar goes away or that the U.S. goes away. It just means that we don't have the strength. We don't have the opportunity at the government level to to uh, finance their debt and expansion cheaply, that we don't maybe have as much access to other products, and that our lives become more expensive. So the period of prosperity that we've lived through here in the U.S., and like we said, it, that kind of flows out to the rest of the world because we're so important, it could just mean a, be a step backwards for everyone. And I don't think that's something that anyone wants to see happen. We want to at least maintain, if not you know, move forward as, as we've lived through this period of prosperity that has done that. The idea that we're going to move potentially backwards and life is going to get worse and harder isn't really a great outcome in 2023. Right. And, and, and so the idea is like, let's say everybody has to buy their oil in dollars. Every right. country has to buy oil in dollars, which is called the petrodollar. And it's been, right. as you mentioned, the policy for the world since the seventies, pretty much. And what that means for the dollar is that if you're, if you're England or Germany, say you have to have a lot of dollars in your banks in order to buy oil for Germany. 
So that means you have, where do you get those dollars? Well, you have to give the U.S. government money to get dollars by from the us. treasuries, right? Because those at least you earn something on them. So yeah, you're sitting on these reserves, so to speak. And and so that means the demand for the do dollar goes high, is high. So that keeps that's sort of this the natural way. The financing cost it, low, exactly. Yeah, and and it keeps our inflation low. Like like and so a, the argument might be that if everybody's buying oil in the yuan, the Chinese yuan, for instance the world won't be around to stop our inflation from happening. Like our inflation could be much greater than it is now. And that's, that's one potential problem. Another potential problem is that countries won't have to be as diplomatic with us because they won't need our dollar. They won't, if Germany has a lot of our treasuries, they want the U S to economically do well. So the U S doesn't default on the money we owe them. And I'll point out one other thing that happened, right, that this kind of one of the reasons this is all sort of falling apart has been a long time, but a really watershed moment is what happened when Russia invaded Ukraine, that we went through all these financial sanctions. We, we kicked Russia first out of the sort of global payment settlement system. But then we did something that has never been done vis-a-vis -a, -vis a major economic nation before, is we freeze we froze the access to their reserves. So basically they had held a bunch of dollars and we went, no, nope, sorry, you can't have that. And so who wants to let the U.S. have the reserve currency, be forced to do business in dollars just to allow the U.S. to say, no, you can't access that. I mean, it was an absolute insane thing that wasn't didn't happen through Congress. It was, you know, Biden and his administration kind of made this off-the-cuff decision. And by the way, a couple other of our allies, central banks, the ECB and, and Bank of Japan also did the same thing. And that was really, I think, one of the, the key kind of points in time that if you're somebody who mm, maybe you have some things you want to do that aren't as friendly to what the U.S. wants you to do, now all of a sudden the person who's in charge of the game isn't going to let you play. That's a huge, huge issue. Yeah, so so potentially people could look at the situation. And this, by the way, is not any comment on on the war with Russia and Ukraine because obviously, obviously it didn't stop the war from happening. Correct. So it happened anyway. But this weaponizing of the dollar, countries can look at Russia and say, hey, if it happened to them, it could happen to us. And so they might be more open to another reserve currency. But my my push, like a few months ago, I was really nervous about this. And that weekend, this, this is like, I don't know, six months ago, there were oil transactions done in the yuan. Yeah. There was uh, oil transactions done in the Brazilian real. But then I thought, who the heck wants to hold the Brazilian real as their major, like, like right now, I still would say they're like, no one really, China may be growing fast and whatever, you know, playing a bigger role on the global scale. Nobody wants to hold the yuan though, ultimately, I think. Yeah. Well, that, let me tell you what they're doing. So the, I completely agree with you. So that there have been all these people who have forecasted that China is going to be huge and it's going to be the yuan. And I agree. It's a communist country. Nobody wants to hold. I mean, if, if you don't trust the U.S. with your dollars, do you trust China with their yuan? Right. No. So here's what they've been doing. They have been loading up on physical gold. And they are now offering credible physical gold settlement. So if you trade in yuan at any point in time, it's not a backing. It's not like a one for one. But if you trade and you say, yeah, you don't want to hold this anymore, you have that opportunity to then retrade that into physical gold. And that's what they're using as this kind of de facto backing for their currency. So, so let me ask you this, though. 
like so China then will say, hey, you can either have Yuan or gold? Like what? So so you trade in Yuan, right? So you're holding Yuan, but they say if you don't want to hang on to that, we have this exchange well, that will then exchange the Yuan for gold. So you still have to make the initial trade, but the settlement is done, then okay, you can have the, the gold. My pushback on that is that there's not enough gold in the world. Like the <laughs> amount and this is why Nixon got us off gold is because the US was in such debt because of the Vietnam War and, and the Great Society programs back in the sixties that we just didn't have enough gold to pay our debts that we got off the gold standard, the rest of the world followed. It depends on the pricing of gold, right? So the, the, the pricing of physical gold in particular has been suppressed because of the kind of paper gold trade. The reality is, is if you let gold go to you know what it probably would be, or they do a repricing of it, then that changes the system. And I think that's one thing that people are projecting is, again, one of many possible outcomes is that sure. you see that major repricing in something like gold or that it ends up being a basket of currencies or as we've been talking about, you know, that you write in the book, you have something like a central bank digital currency that maybe has some sort of a, a backing of a basket of currencies and commodities and precious metals and whatnot behind it. So, you know, I think that the form that it takes is definitely very up in the air. And we know that it's chaotic. I mean, after Bretton Woods, it took 15 years to kind of transition from the pound sterling being the reserve currency to the U.S. really you know, kind of being at that center. So that's a messy period that people have to, to get through. And you know, we don't know what that looks like, but anything that is going moving in that direction could cause a lot of chaos for people. This is great. Thank you for responding for, to my different pushbacks. My next pushback on this is that although probably our biggest export is the dollar, our second biggest <laughs> export is is all of our innovation. Like, yeah. no, China still can't really compete with us in genomics, AI, uh, any kind of automation, internet, uh, like all these technological innovations from the past hundred years. It all comes from the U.S. Right. Like, no, China's not even close. Nobody's close. I guess the question then, and it kind of goes back to the, 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 the thesis, the kind of the haves and have nots, is if you look at the technology landscape today and the really the big tech companies, there's a handful of tech companies that sort of control everything. And if you think of their market caps, I mean, the market caps of the biggest tech companies are more than the GDPs of most of the countries in the world. Many of the, the tech companies have more users than countries have people. So there are a handful of people who are going to benefit. The question is, does that flow down to every American? And I think that the, what we're seeing with the, the sort of transfer of wealth that's been happening and this idea of people not owning anything is this barbelling of the population where you have a small group of people who are going to do very well. That's what they're trying to do. But what does that mean for everybody else in the process? And I think that's got to be the, the level of concern because we did have this, this period of prosperity where people were doing well and, and able to live that American dream. That's becoming harder. And these signposts are really taking us in, in a way that looks potentially kind of bleak here. And so, again, as I said, it doesn't mean America's going away, but if there is some resetting of the financial order, who is going to be the one that benefits? And you know, if that's done in some sort of a, 
debt jubilee or a marking up of gold or, you know, with different silos or God forbid, a war that changes that around, there are people who are going to come out on top as has happened every time this has happened historically. You know, this is not something that we haven't seen before. We've seen these, these kind of rises and falls of financial empires. And, you know, there are people who do very well with it. But that's sort of the point is that the people who see this coming, who are the students of history, who are like, ah, oh, this rhymes a lot with what I saw before with Britain, with the Dutch, with Rome back in the day. Um, I got to make sure that I'm going to do really well and that I'm putting myself in a position to succeed. And you, oh, you should get really comfortable with non-ownership. It'll be really great for you. And it's that separation, which I think we have to be really cognizant of because it's not good for the average person. And just from a stability standpoint, we know throughout history that doesn't work out too well either. Looking for a rewarding, life-changing opportunity that enhances the lives of children in your community? Well, with almost 50 years of experience, Huntington Learning Center is the nation's leading K-12 tutoring and test prep franchise dedicated to shaping brighter futures for both students and franchisees. Huntington is the top revenue-producing supplemental education franchise in the U.S., and their proven system is the key to success for you and your students. The Huntington Advantage includes low startup cost, turnkey systems, dedicated support teams, national and local marketing support, and multiple revenue streams to help you build a life-enriching and profitable business. No education experience needed. In today's environment, the need for tutoring has never been greater. When you become part of Huntington Learning Center, you're filling an urgent need in the growing $5 billion supplemental education industry. To learn more, Visit HuntingtonFranchise.com. Make a meaningful difference, pursue your dreams of business ownership, and be a positive force in your community. Don't wait. Visit HuntingtonFranchise.com today. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like, I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H I M S, HIMS is changing men's health care by providing simple and convenient access to science backed treatments for erectile dysfunction hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I'm definitely going to use him from now Not on. Not that you need it. You're, you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might, you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the HIMSS app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hymns.com slash James. That's how I 
how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. HIMS.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See HIMS.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. So what's the path to Main Street America doesn't own anything? I think it's really a change in the way that they approach their lifestyle. I know people don't like to hear this, and this is you know advice that you might hear during any time, but I think it's even more important now is really kind of rejiggering and putting yourself on a personal austerity plan for your spending and taking whatever you can and making sure that you do have some level of hard assets. And obviously it's going to be different for everybody, you know, whether that is a home, whether that's precious metals, you know, I know folks like you like digital assets, things like Bitcoin and cryptocurrency um, and, you know, other, other potential assets that you can actually have ownership and have that opportunity for appreciation, stocks, businesses, and the like. And you have to rejigger the, the way you think about things because, you know, we are a consumeristic nation, but consuming is different than taking your money and investing in it. And we were talking a little bit earlier off camera about just shifting lifestyles too. You know, if you're in a city where you can't afford that house and you're paying rent and you're making somebody else wealthy along the way, maybe it's a shift and you're living in a different location where you do have that opportunity to participate in the American dream. Yeah, that, that's so interesting because like, for instance, COVID has changed lifestyle a lot. Like there's now work from home and, and remote work. And don't you think that, I mean, I'm hoping that some of the bad things that happen are going to be outweighed by the good, which is that the talent and innovation that would happen in places like New York, San Francisco, LA, Chicago is going to disperse now throughout the country. And so people are going to move to Dallas or Denver or Atlanta or Salt Lake City or whatever. And that's what we're kind of seeing happening is that there's net outflows from the major cities and yep. net inflows to this sort of second, third, like, like Cincinnati right now is the fastest moving real estate market. So it's like a third or fourth tier city that is booming because of these outflows from the major cities. And that seems like ultimately like a net good thing for the country that, that, that talent gets dispersed and money gets dispersed like that. I mean, I'm all, all for decentralization, um, like when that's done again by your own agency and choice and not like you felt like you were forced into it because of a bad situation created by government mandate. But I do think that that you know, potentially could be a, a silver lining that we see here when we do see that this dispersion. But I think the other thing that's important to realize too, and I think this is part of our whole discussion here is that not everybody in America is the same and people like you and me may have the opportunity to work from home and have a lot of flexibility, but there are a lot of people who can't, you know, we have a 70% service-based economy. A very large part of that requires you to be performing services somewhere other than in your home. And so, you know, I, I see friends and people that I talk to and, and, and you know, kind of 
counsel about these issues. And they're like, what do you mean this work from home trend? Like, I can't work from home. I'm cutting hair. I'm working, you know, as a janitor. I'm working in a hotel. Like, this is never going to be an option for me. Um, so, you know, it, it's it's easy for us, you know, when, especially for the, the people who are in these kind of bubbles of, hey, we have this great flexibility. My friend Carol Markowitz, I think, calls it the, the pajama class or the laptop class, something like that, you know, that, that has lots of options, which is great. But there are so many people around the country that don't have those options. And again, the, the division of the haves and have nots, the picking of winners and losers has really been a bad thing for our country and for you know just the outcomes for for the every American and so I think we need to be cognizant of that as well. So how do we how do we you know avoid this because again it was so easy for the US to just shut down the entire economy and think there's going to be no consequences. Obviously we see the consequences with inflation, with displaced workers, with with everything. It's going to take years to really understand the economic yeah. effects of COVID, like, you know, the effect on, on major cities having these outflows, like the downside is that all commercial real estate in major cities is being flushed down the toilet right now. Like, like in San Francisco, people who own like malls and, and major office buildings are literally just handing the keys back to the bank and saying, Hey, we got to go. You guys could run this building if you want. Like it's a mall. Don't treat everyone nice. And that's never happened before. And th think, of, and think of the consequences of that. So, if you're in a a REIT or you, you're a real estate owner, you you file, you got you, this write off, and you have some way that you can manage through it, and you go and raise more capital, and you buy some stuff back cheaper, and and you have these sort of vulture boom and bust cycles. If you're the small business who is serving donuts next to the mall where everybody came to shop and to work, and you were kind of the lifeblood, and that was your only business then that's your entire life savings that's just blown up. And it, so it's, again, it's this very different outcomes. And when we saw 15 years of suppressed interest rate policy by the Fed, nine years, which was, you know, zero interest rate or, or about zero interest rate, and you saw sort of this, this transfer, this benefit to the asset holders at the expense of the, the savers and the retirees and the people who are just getting by. And then you saw that happen again during COVID, where, you know, the, the people who had the big businesses did well and the small businesses are cloyed is down. This, this becomes this recurring theme is that if you are connected, you're going to have more opportunities and you have that duration and that sustainability. And if you're a small person, it just doesn't work out well for you. And I think that's the, the pushback here against these central planners. You know, the idea that the Fed came in, interfered with interest rates, put $9 trillion on its balance sheet over this 15-year period that wasn't to help the average American. That was to help their buddies on Wall Street and to allow for the government to continue to finance at the, a very low interest rate. And we've seen the, the wealthy get wealthier and the average person not do as well and, and have fewer wealth creation opportunities. And I'm all for merit-based inequality. Like if you are Michael Jordan and you're the best basketball player, or you're the best singer and you know you should get paid more, but when it's driven by central planning policy, I have a really big problem with that. Yeah. So, so a, what do you think is going to actually happen in the next few years? And B, given that these things are probably going to happen, 
someone listening to this, what can they do to protect themselves? Yeah. So as you know, in, in financial services or uh, in the in the markets in particular, it's the hardest thing to p- predict is duration, right? So you can see the trajectory of these things happen. You could be a short seller. You can know that a stock is going to eventually go down, but if it goes way up before it comes down, you're going to get crushed. So that that's the hardest thing to do is, you you know, you see what's happening, but getting the timing right is almost impossible in finance. And I think that's the same thing here is we don't know if this happens in 12 months. We don't know if it happens in 12 years. We don't know if it happens in 50 years. But I think that you do need to be prepared and ask yourself questions. One of the things that we haven't talked about yet that was in the book, for example, um, is that there's almost $85 trillion in wealth that is set to be passed down voluntarily over the next 23 years. And you know that can really help to level the playing field for the average American just to have, especially if you're a millennial or Gen Z and you get you know, some of the wealth that the boomers created passed down to you. But we're seeing from you know various administrations and uh, you know a lot of the, the the pundits talking about things like wealth taxes and inheritance taxes. And my fear is that you use the carrot of the billionaire or the ultra wealthy for people to go, yeah, we should totally tax you know unrealized capital gains or you know something like that. Not realizing that those are the people who have the sophisticated planning elements. And that that's not what they're actually coming after. They want they want the bulk of that eighty five trillion dollars. So you know, as the average person, for example, you can look into estate planning. You can look into trusts, or maybe you can start doing some gifting up to those maximums each year. I think it's seventeen thousand per year right now. If that's something that you're concerned about, because it's possible, though not guaranteed, you could be grandfathered in if they make rule changes. But the first step, James, obviously, is just empowering yourself with all the information because what you're going to do if they come out with a central bank digital currency is going to be very different than what you're doing to protect yourself from a potential wealth tax. All right, let me ask you about that because, again, this is not like a for or against, but it's just reality. Like every country in the world is going to eventually do some sort of central bank digital currency. And there's a lot of feelings, and, and, and you talk about this in the book, that that's going to give the government more transparency into how you personally spend money. They're going to know everything basically. And they're going to be able to do things about it. Like if they decide, Oh, you don't believe in a vaccine for the, for the next COVID. Oh, right. we're going to shut down your son, your, your currency. We're just not gonna let you spend money. And, and there's a lot of fear about that. Of course, that's just a theory of what could happen that nobody's said that will happen I mean, government could do that now. They could shut down your bank account. They know where you do your banking anyway because of where you pay your money to your taxes. But what is going to happen with that? Like, again, every country is going to eventually do it. So what's what's a way to benefit maybe or or to look at this central bank digital currency in a positive way? <laughs> so I, it's one of the things I fear the most, frankly. And, uh, you know, I see different ends and different ways that they could enact it, you know, whether it's promising UBI promising some sort of a bonus, you know, the same kind of thing that happened with the stimulus checks. Oh, you want stimulus checks? Oh, I don't realize that that's going to, you know, generate massive inflation for the rest of my life. I'll give you 10 digital dollars, James, for every dollar that you get. And then people think that they're going to be rich because they don't understand purchasing power versus, you know, the nominal headline value of the dollar. Or it could be something like, hey, you guys hate inflation. 
Um, if we had a central bank digital currency, we could better c- control inflation because you know what they can do if they want to destroy, destroy demand, they just turn off like access to spending, right? So I think that there's always these kind of, oh, these are these good ideas and ways that we can put this in place that end up having really bad consequences. And we know, as we've seen with you know every government program that's ever been put out, that once they start with one level of scope, it just sort of expands and expands. So I think that the question for people is that if you know you have these dollars that you are earning and they're going to be in a form factor that somebody else has complete transparency and control over, do you again want to take some of those dollars and put them into other things, you know, whether that's you know, the investing side for the, the hard assets um, or think mediums of exchange. You know, how are you if you know they don't want you to eat burgers because you know it's bad for the planet and you really want to eat a burger? How are you going to barter? How are you going to use you know precious metals? Or if you're somebody who's into digital currency, is that you know an, an avenue for you? What is it that you're going to do? And I think part of it is just thinking through this ahead of time and having that plan. You know, if your house is on fire, it's a really bad time to have an escape plan and think about getting insurance. But if you've done that already then when that happens, at least you can go, okay, this is a bad situation, but like I've thought through what I'm going to do. And I think this is an exercise in that. We don't know the timing. There are several different ways that this can turn out, but have you spent the time thinking through what you would do in each of these different situations? And because it's coming at us from every different angle, you have a lot of different situations you need to think through, but fortunately many of them have you know similar, similar ways that you can approach it. Uh, just like just like dealing with in- inflation, if you're thinking it, it through in advance, okay, you own assets denominated in dollars. So if the dollar, you know, if you need more dollars to buy a house, hey, no problem, I own a house. Yes. If you need more dollars to buy McDonald's stock, no problem, I own stocks or I own, you know, bonds or other assets that I own art. I own other assets that go up in value potentially. Exactly. And you have to decide what those assets are given given the situation. And, and I think diversification in general uh, is, is a good philosophy here. Like diversify where you're getting your money from might mean multiple incomes. If you own a business, you know, or, or a shareholder of a business, you know, there's more of these crowdfunding uh, platforms where there's more, you know, small businesses you can invest in. Um, if, if you want to do that, that's, you know, and a a skill in and of itself, but that's another, uh, like there's more places to put money now than than ever before. So being educated about that, I do agree, is is important. Yeah, and I also think just you know kind of things that people like you and I who've had the exposure to it in financial services, but other people haven't thought through are important to go through. Um, asking for ownership as part of your compensation is huge. There's so few people who really think about oh, do I want you know, stock options or some sort of a grant or some ownership in the company that I work for? And if you're going to be putting your heart and soul into building something that isn't yours, having that ownership is a great thing. And there are a lot of people who would be like, no, I'd rather have the cash. But if you're really committed to it, um, asking for that, and, and it, it's available for private and public companies. Not every company does it, but it's one of those things that I would be asking about and be more vocal. How can I get some ownership of this company that I'm working for and that I want to help build and succeed? What's the deal with our what's called unfunded liabilities, like like Social Security? Like how much do we? Owe, how much are we going to owe 
in Social Security over like the next 30 or 40 years as, as the baby boomers and then Gen X re- retired? So, okay, so this doesn't include state pensions and it doesn't include the $32 trillion in actual debt that we owe, but the statistics that we have in the book um, cite just under $130 trillion in unfunded liabilities, which is one of the reasons why I'm so concerned about, A, them trying to inflate up the, the value of the dollar um, and print more dollars to deal with this and, and you know, potentially cause inflation, and also coming after that $85 trillion that's turning over voluntarily, because boy, that would put a nice dent in those unfunded liabilities. Um, the, 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 the fiscal situation of the United States is not sustainable, and this is not my opinion solely. It's the opinion of the U.S. Treasury. It's the opinion of the CBO. Like it, It's not on a sustainable path, and they have said so in black and white. So something's got to give. And you know, so far, we haven't on, on any side of the aisle had you know, anybody with, with a backbone to say we really need to address this in a meaningful way, which means probably taking away some services because the only other ways that you pay for things are raising taxes, which at some point, as we know, ends up being a, a negative revenue generating proposition, um, you know, printing more money to, you know, in terms of monetizing the debt. So you don't have a lot of choices here. They all end up poorly for the average American and nobody really has the fortitude to be the one to, to deal with that. I guess because like, obviously politicians are elected by people and the primary voters of primaries are older people. And so that's who benefits from social security, Medicare, Medicaid, all these things is, is older citizens. And I'm arguing against myself. I'm (laughs) four and a half or I'm four years exactly away from being able to collect my first social security check oddly, which feels weird to say. I've never said that out loud before, (laughs) but maybe there could be some staggered way. Like clearly quality of lifespan is going up like people are working into their 70s or or longer. Lifespan in general is going up. So maybe you have some cutoff, like whoever is Gen Z now or millennials now or whatever, your retirement age is going to be not 59 and a half or 65, but, you know, 65 and a half and and 70. You know, maybe there's a way to do that. Did you see what happened in France when they tried to do that? They tried to move the retirement age from 62 to 64 and they burned down Paris. (laughs) <laughs> oh no! That's, so that's something to worry about. So that, I mean, that, and, yeah. that's the, and that's the challenge: is that we don't have strong financial literacy in this country, and so empowering people with this knowledge to understand the trade-offs and saying, "Yes, I know you don't want this, but the alternative is worse," or "Don't take the thousand-dollar stimulus check because it's going to end up costing you seven to ten thousand dollars a year minimum for the rest of your life." Those kinds of things, the average person has to get their head wrapped around for us to have any choice because the politicians don't want to risk that level of social unrest. I mean, what, what's interesting is, is that you say people don't have financial literacy and I guess I agree, but the, the problem with that is, is that the evidence is so clear. Like there was a 60 year experiment in central economic planning, and it was called the Soviet Union, right. and it just did not work. The people starved. Five-year plans, they, you know, China and Soviet Union would have these five-year plans. Oh, this is what the these this number of people is going to buy apples. This number of people is going to buy tomatoes, and we'll we'll tell the factories to make that. 
and the people starved. Like they, they right. couldn't make the food that people- And they like, couldn't get it. They couldn't get it to the people. One of the things, Thomas Sowell's basic economics, they talk about in a lot of these places where people starved, it wasn't because they didn't have enough food, but they didn't have the transportation to get it to the people who needed it. Right. So so capitalism, the gears of capitalism, and, and let's not even use the word capitalism, the gears free, of innovationism- Free, free enterprise. Free enterprise. <laughs> figure that out. Right. Like, oh, I need to get a car to get my apples that I grew right. to, you know, I, get, I need a train car to get it to New York City so that enough people can eat them. And I know exactly how much people want because people have been, yesterday, people <laughs> ordered this, not five years ago, but yesterday. And so the gears of free enterprise figure this out, which is why the U.S. was able to, to flourish. And the, and the Soviet Union collapsed, the failure, the experiment failed, and China is essentially you know, kind of this dictatorial capitalism right now. So A, everybody knows history. Everybody saw that. And then the second thing is when you have people, politicians, like well-known famous politicians come out and say, oh, we can solve, we could tax unrealized capital gains, which means your investment <laughs> hasn't, you invested in a stock, say, and it's gone up, but you haven't sold the stock. So it's unrealized. Let's make it personal to the people who are listening here. You bought a house, your parents bought a house in 1970 for $100,000. Today on Zillow, Zillow says it's worth $2 million. You now own tax on $1.9 million. Where are you getting that tax from? Yeah, you have to sell the house. And, and the, so, so again, basic financial literacy, if everybody has to sell everything, <laughs> Then the, it's worse than the, it's ten times worse and than the you Great Depression. Own nothing, James. This is the whole point here, right? Is is that these ideas that yeah. are being floated, okay. they sound nice in theory. They're very like unicorn like, right? But the reality and the history shows that they don't work. And we have a bunch of people because we have been prosperous who are in denial and don't sort of have that broad worldview. I mean, I would imagine. You know, if you were in, like, you know, we've been in the pole position, you know, at, at the center of the global financial universe here in the U.S. for the last 80 years. If you were in Britain while they were at the center, they probably felt invincible too. I mean, the same with the Dutch, right? Like, hey, we're we're everything. We're we're the we're the man. It nothing's ever going to change because it's just hard to imagine how you can mess it up so completely. But then you go look, and our public jet, debt to GDP is at 125 percent. You look at the unfunded liabilities. You look at sort of the the, the people that the central banks who are moving away from the U.S. dollar. There are a lot of red signs on the horizon. So you know, again, it's not necessarily going to happen tomorrow. But you have to to plan and prepare. You're not going to change the new financial world order from happening at some point in time. But maybe we can delay it, or you can at least help yourself get through it. Yeah, I agree. Like, I'm going to be both a cynic and an optimist here. So. A, I think it's, I'm cynical in that I think multi-billionaires, it's to their incentive to have this new world order because it makes everyone, just when they made their money, everyone else now will be blocked from making money. So they will rule. And so I'm being cynical there and, and conspiratorial. But the flip side is, I would say Gen X and baby boomers are more sophisticated financially than the generation before. Like each generation gets a little bit more sophisticated, I think, I hope. And we're not going to vote for something that takes away everybody's property. Although again, we did with you, you, ha you have young people who are going out and taking out multiple six figures in college debt 
to pay for five figure salaries. So like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'd like to think that they're savvy, but the, the, the architecture around them is feeding them lots of misinformation about things that don't add up mathematically. And I think that's the, that not to say that they're not savvy people, but there are too many sort of free riders and people who are benefiting that are creating a system. And then they're just being like, yes, you should totally take out $200,000 in debt to make, you know, to, to go teach in a public school. Like it, it makes no sense whatsoever. They're never going to be able to pay that back. And by the way, nobody's running on it from either party. You're not seeing anybody being like, you know, the government's the largest predatory lender in the world. You know, the colleges, it's a huge wealth transfer from young people to college and their administrators. Like we need to fix this system so that our young people not only get good educations, but have the opportunity to then go out into the world and create wealth and be in a better position instead of college making them poorer. So again, where I'm cynical is I don't think government's going to solve that problem <laughs> because of, because if you if you even say kids shouldn't go to college, which, which I wrote a column on in the financial times in 2005. And I got so much hate mail. It was ridiculous. Now it's more of a conversation, but it's still, people are pretty much against that idea. Government's going to push back, but you know, college tuitions have risen faster than inflation for the past 70 years in a row, every single year. And like you say, you're borrowing six figures to make a, a five figure income that can't be sustainable from a free enterprise point of view. Like at some point, all of these new public school teachers will say, Hey, don't do what I did. And they're going to be educating the kids, hopefully what? better. But how, how long is that going to take? You would think that that would have happened at this point. Instead, they're saying, forgive our debt instead of saying, you know, they want the for free ride, not understanding that they're still going to pay for it and everyone else is going to pay for it. And that's become the shift in the system is that government and the Fed creating these problems. And then they're look, people are, have been trained to look to them to be the one who's going to create the solution. And you're right. They're not the ones we need to stand up and we need to educate people. And we need to push back against this. It's the only way it's going to change. Yeah. And you make an interesting point. Like the, the, the government now, and this just this just came up in the Supreme Court the other day. The government obviously wants to give student debt relief, and I and I really feel for the people who have student 100%. loans, which is because it's they made a mistake before they were ready to to assess what that risk was. And it was they, and they were preyed upon by the government. The seventeen and eighteen right. year olds preyed upon by the government nationalizing most of student lending. Right. So there's 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 got to be some consequences somehow for, for the government in this, which is unfortunately all of us it can't right. really happen that way. <laughs> right. And, but you know, I don't, I don't know. I mean, look, I mean, one thing they could do, I, they, uh, right. they could do two things, right? I mean, one is that they could change the interest situation, right? They, they had basically free capital for a long time. Why are they earning a bit, a bigger interest rates? You know, they could, they could change the interest because obviously that's a big piece of what's killing people, but really they need to get out of the lending. We need an underwriting process. We need to bring back bankruptcy option, which you can't have if you don't have the underwriting process, because it's not baked in there. You need the colleges to have some skin in the game. I mean, like it just needs to be revised. I, I agree. Like there's no reason why if I was a college president, <laughs> I'm going to raise the tuition as much as I can because the government right. guarantees all the money. I get the money no right. matter what. But here's the thing now. The problem is because there's the hint of student loan debt relief, I'm more willing to take out a loan for my kid because maybe I'll never have to pay it. <laughs> 
because there's going to be debt relief. So that is going to keep the system going. Moral hazard. Even the whiff in the air. Exactly. It's the moral hazard baked into the system. And uh, yeah, so it's, it's a question of at some point, this, like you said, becomes unsustainable. It all blows up. So the question is, what happens then at that point? Like there has to be a reset because we can't just keep pushing in this direction. Like something eventually you, you, you're like, oh, we're not at the edge of the cliff. I'll just go a little farther. Eh, we're not at the edge of the cliff. I'll go a little farther. Eventually you're going to go over the cliff and then, okay, all bets are off at that point. Maybe when there's a, uh, the next generation assumes the presidency, like there's instead of, you know, 70 and 80 year olds on both parties running for president, maybe when 40 year olds, I, I don't know. So, here, so here's what I would Give say. Give me some hope, Carol. So here's what Give I would say about optimism. that. Is, is, is human nature is human nature. People act in their, their best self-interest. Nobody would want to be a politician unless they're a narcissistic sociopath. Like the three people who are good aren't going to outweigh the, the narcissistic sociopath. So we need to, as individuals, be able to push back against that. And then also, you know, a lot of it, this is look at what the elite people are doing instead of what they're saying. You know, when they say, oh, you know, don't own a house and they're loading up on mansions or, oh, you know, you don't need this. Watch what they're doing <laughs> and put a lot more weight on that and just prepare yourself and your community that if something were to shift in, in the global financial order tomorrow, like what is it that you're going to do? And I do think, you know, the, the idea of America is so important that eventually we will have people who will stand up. It may be really ugly in the process. I hope not, but we need to be prepared to work through that and to you know make you, set yourself up, you know, kind of during during that interim period. Well, Carol, I hope you're right, and I hope it's not so painful uh, because I agree. The American dream, as distorted as some have made it out to be whether you're left or you're right or whatever. The American dream is very real. It's created incredible innovation throughout, particularly this past generation. And, and the innovation is only getting greater and faster with, again, in, in every technological sector. And I, for one, hope that continues. And I know you do as well, but you're right. Things have to correct itself somehow. And we'll, we'll see how that happens. But Cal Roth, author of you will own nothing. Great book. It describes the, all the history of all these different trends. It describes what's going to happen next. It describes solutions. I really hope people read it. It's really important. You will own nothing by Carol Roth. Carol, once again, thanks for coming on the podcast and I hope you come on again. Yeah, I would love to. It's such an interesting and thoughtful conversation and just appreciate us being able to explore these ideas that I think are going to be really important, you know, for the decades to come. So would very much welcome yeah. another conversation. Thank you. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. 
But then there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy.